it's like, sure, like a hundred more thousand dollars is great, but you're not thinking about like, okay, well, what's the, what's the whole picture? How does this align with my actual values? And maybe your actual values are to like have as much free time with your grandkids, you know, over the next 20 years and you've already got your financial needs met. And so then it doesn't make sense to spend a year trying to get a hundred thousand dollars. In that case, I think that like reflection helps you focus on the on the big picture instead of just on like the individual additions themselves. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F Word podcast. I am delighted you are here for another week as we talk to Lydie Klotz. Lydie is the author of a fantastic book called Subtraction, The Untapped Science of Less. Lydie's work is all about how we could start to think about subtracting things in our lives. We have this default setting to add more always looking what we can add to try to make our lives better instead of thinking about what can we take away from our already busy lives. And this has direct correlation to our financial lives. Before we get into this episode, if you can please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. If you've been enjoying these shows, I'd greatly appreciate a review as it shows that you're listening and enjoying the shows and it will help get great guests like Lydie. Lydie is a professor at the University of Virginia, where he works in the departments of engineering, architecture, and business. And it's interesting, as you'll hear through his conversation today and through his book, Subtraction, he really believes in this interdisciplinary approach to research and applying that research. His background being in engineering, architecture, and business goes very well together with the human sciences, as we do discuss is an example of how he applies his interdisciplinary work. And that's how his book, Subtraction, came about. Lydie advises influential decision makers that straddle academia and practice, working with departments of energy and homeland security, the National Institute of Health, Resources for Future, and many other organizations. Klotz has written for venues such as Science, Nature, Harvard Business Review, and the Washington Post. During this episode, we talk about how subtracting is the untapped science of less and how it can bring us more joy, time, and happiness in our lives. We have this natural default setting as humans to constantly look at ways to add more, to put more on our to-do list. And we rarely sit down to think Maybe we should start just taking things off of our our existing to-do list because if you're like me, that list is already big enough on its own right. When it comes to our financial lives, this has great application because it seems like we're always trying to add more complexity to our financial lives, add more interest rate, add more savings. While in some cases, adding is the right solution, it's not always the case. 
And this book really argues that we really can benefit from slowing down, sitting with our own thoughts, and really being mindful and intentional on what things we can actually remove or subtract from our lives. I found it soothing, in a way, to know that this desire to always operate on a default setting to add or have addition in our lives is rooted in our biology because from an evolutionary perspective, it was essential to add as it helped us survive and evolve over time. However, now living in a postmodern world, our default option of more isn't always the best solution. So during this episode, Lydie discusses how we can start to override this default thinking so we can add a little more subtraction in our lives. And during this conversation, we even get the opportunity to talk about Bruce Springsteen and how his creation on his album, The Darkness on the Edge of Town, was a good example of subtraction. As consistent listeners may know, we have a resident musician, Rootub, who comes on and sings some fantastic songs based on what our guests are talking about. There was one song that we made that was never aired that is perfect for today's episode. The song was called, If You Want More, Desire Less. Here's a sample. I think Lighty would approve of it. Here we go. Beyond control and into the flow Oh, what we want will come and go When we desire less We can have so much more I love that song. Perhaps that could become an anthem for Lydie. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Lydie Klotz. Lydie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. It's great to be here. It is. We just basically had a whole recording of Bruce Springsteen before I hit record. I thought I would just ask one question about Springsteen so our our audience who may or may not be Springsteen fans can know one thing. The first time you went to a Springsteen concert, can you explain that experience for those who are maybe considering seeing him on this upcoming tour and tell them why they need to go? I'm not like a super religious person, but religious at all. In fact, so I haven't gone to it, but it just, it felt like kind of almost like a revival where after the fact where like you get out of there and you just feel clean and changed and emotionally fresh. It's like nothing I've ever experienced. And I, I'm a huge Springsteen fan. Like my, and I had listened to all his albums and my brother was like, you got to go to a concert. I'm like, why do I need to go to a concert? It's the same music as on the albums. He's like, no, just trust me, go. And I mean, it's just, it creates an environment that's there's, there's nothing like it in the world, but I, I'm trying to, I mean, the clean is the feeling afterwards. I always feel like re- reset and positive the next day. Um, during it, it's just the, uh, Again, I'm not like a person who like gets up and sings and like is dancing around, but for some reason, like the whole, you know, when there's 50,000 other people doing it, it just creates a really cool, like shared emotional experience. It definitely does. You reminded me of when you, that cleansingness, I don't think that's a word, but feeling clean <laughs> after. Um, sure it is. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast about a hockey player 
who played for the New Jersey Devils, and he was a rookie at the time. And their GM, his name's Lou Lamorello. He's just like very stern and tough GM. Called him into his office and said, "Hey, what are you doing tomorrow night?" And I think they were going to a movie with a couple of the other rookies. Like, cancel your plans. And he gave him Springsteen tickets. And they're like, his name's Scott Gomez, the player. He's like, oh, I know Springsteen. Scott Gomez. Yeah, oh, yeah. okay, yeah. He's yeah, like yeah. Springsteen. I'm like, what? Why? Why are we going to Springsteen? And they thought they were in trouble going to the GM's office. And here they are giving Springsteen tickets. And uh, Lou Lamarell is like, watch how hard this guy works. Yeah. And so they go to the concert kind of reluctantly. And after it's just hilarious to hear Scott Gomez's take on it. He's like, it was amazing. He didn't say I feel cleansed after, but it, he was saying that without saying it. So I think yeah. you're spot on. No, the, the amount of work comes across like right at the beginning. And then you think about the amount of like preparation after, like after you go, you're like, holy cow to like coordinate all those things. Just amazing amount of like, work that they put in together as a band and then like the preparation and then the spot mixed with the apparent spontaneity of it. Plus the, like he's sweating and like, it's amazing. Yeah. And he's like 70. I mean, he wasn't 70 last time I saw him, but now he's 72 years old. So if we're plugging, like go see a 72 year old, like work harder than most 30 year olds. That's a cool thing to see. It is for three hours. For three, at least three hours is the minimum, (laughs) right? That's before the encore. Uh, Well, this podcast is about our relationships with money. And I wish I could say then I feel like a prerequisite to talk about subtraction or cultivate subtraction in our our lives is to go see a Springsteen show. So we first get cleansed and then we can evaluate what we need to subtract. But unfortunately, people are buying these tickets and they're just too expensive right now. So it's something we got to figure out. But if it was free, I would say that's a prerequisite to your book is go see Springsteen. And then we could start looking at what needs to be subtracted in our lives. <laughs> it's taking all, all of it out of me not to continue talking about Springsteen, but we're going to shift focus towards your book. Feel free to weave in Springsteen at any moment. <laughs> but so th- this podcast is about our relationships with money, where we seek to understand our minds, our money and what matters most. As I was reading your book, what occurred to me is this idea of subtraction really helps us to sit and evaluate what's important in our lives so that we can actually subtract something. I thought that was really important because often in our financial lives, we're we're just seeking and it's like this default setting where we want more. If we want to improve our finances, we need more interest rate returns or we need more savings. Then we start to need a bigger house. We need a nicer car, more clothes. And we, we can easily go down this path of addition, addition, addition. So my first question to you is, based on your research and all your work, why do humans have this obsession, this default setting for more and more? And what are, if anything at all, these negative side effects that could come along with always addition, addition without subtraction? I think that what's new about our work, I mean, the research side of it anyway, that is that we do have this like kind of our, our first cognitive instinct is to think about like, Hey, what can I add to this situation to make it better? And we've studied this across, you know, I'm an engineer and architect by like, those are the courses I teach. You know, we studied this in, in Lego structures, giving people a, a Lego thing that could be improved by adding or subtracting to it. And people tend to add in that context. You, you mentioned all the finance examples, but it's also, if you just think about how we fill up our days, right? I mean, if I, okay, how am I going to, how am I going to do better at 
you know, whatever I want to do better at. And our first in- instinct is to think, okay, like what can I add to, to what I'm currently doing, which is no big deal. Right. I mean, it's good to add things in a lot of cases and, but it's a problem when we just add and move on without thinking about what we might subtract from this situation. Right. It turns out that that happens systematically and, and in our basic cognition, when we're thinking about how to change something from how it is to how we want it to be, we therefore don't think as much about subtracting. And it's not that we can't override it, right? We're helping override it right now by kind of bringing that tendency to the forefront where it's like, okay, if you do spend a little more thought about like, okay, what is the best way to improve my you know, financial well-being, for example, like sometimes it might be to subtract things. I don't know if it's, if it's money or if it's, you know, complexity from your portfolio, though that's something that often gets thrown around as like, we unnecessarily make our investing strategies too complex. That's the basic thing that's happening. There's the whole bunch of reasons why it could be happening. We'd start with kind of the evolutionary ones, right? It's like we've acquiring stuff has been advantageous, helped us pass down our genes, whether it's acquiring food, also Another evolutionary one is just kind of this desire to display competence, right? So the one example I use in the book is these bower birds. They're the, they're the birds that build ceremonial nests and the males builds the nests. The female go and look at the nests and decide which male to mate with based on the, how much they like the nest. And then the female goes and builds a nest that actually provides the shelter for the young, right? So the whole point of the nest that the male built is to show, Hey, I can interact effectively with the world. Right. Which is a, I don't know, evolutionarily that, that showing that is like, okay, those are good genes to have in your offspring because that's going to make them more likely to be successful. But this desire to show that we can affect the world also extends to task completion and probably to kind of financial accumulation of, of stuff at least. So there's another biological reason there that kind of pushes us to add. And then, you know, any kind of basic cognitive behavior has evolutionary forces that help explain it, but also cultural ones and also kind of economic and social ones, right? So the cultural forces, you know, you can think for a long time when we're building up civilization, it makes sense to uh, make sense to add, right? If you don't have a road connecting two places, it makes sense to add it. It's only when you've got like a too built up city that it makes sense to maybe remove a road here and there to, to help people get around better or to make the neighborhoods better. And it's this kind of the same when you think about your finances, right? When you don't have any savings buffer, it makes sense to start saving up money. But at some point, you know, the, the difference between, I don't know, $50 million and a hundred thousand more is really kind of trivial. So just culturally or like historically subtraction, hasn't been the better option. So that could be a reason why we're thinking of it less. Mm. The, the most straightforward way is like we, when we conflate progress with growth, that can make us think of adding first, right? right. Um, it's like, hey, well, it's, you know, progress means getting bigger, definitely, right? And it's like, well, sometimes, yes, but not, not all the time. And that can be another thing that leads us to add. Thank you. So many interesting areas we can go down to. Yeah, and and that's good. And I I have one, actually. What I really got from your book and what your answer right there 
is that at times I feel like I've heard people think that, oh, I'm bad because I want more and more and more. Like I got this default option of addition. And your answer to me helps us humanize this idea that, hey, we're all experiencing this together, evolutionary, socially, culturally. There's this narrative of adding more. And like, uh, I'm glad we, from an evolutionary perspective, had that desire because we survived. Right. (laughs) And what I hear you now talking about is that it's not remove all additions. It's inquiring or contemplating the idea of, hey, subtraction can be a viable option. In your book, you talk about a lot of interesting examples that I feel like make this quite tangible. Do you have one that specifically stands out based on what we've been talking about already? I was going to ask you about the Strider bike just because I'm a, I'm a dad and that Strider bike was phenomenal for my kid. But yeah. uh, I don't know if I just cued you so much for the Strider bike. But some examples that start to bring this idea of subtraction to the audience mind so that they can actually see like, oh, wow, yeah, that, that was subtraction. Yeah, well, we've got to tell them about the Strider bike okay. now. And then I'll also bring a... like So the Strider bike is kind of an invention by subtraction, right? So this is the bike that allows, I mean, my daughter was riding it before she was two years old. And so it's a a really small bike and it doesn't have any pedals and the kids walk on top of it. And then eventually after they've walked on top of it for about an hour, they're going a little faster and like two or three hours on it and they can balance and propel it like a Flintstones vehicle. And now like my daughter, she's three and she can go as fast as I can running on this Strider bike. And so it's this really cool invention. It gives kids more years of bike riding. If you see the look on their face, it's just Mm -hmm. amazing. I mean, they're active. I, even my physical therapist said it's good for their core. It's just so many benefits to this thing. And the whole invention is to take off the pedals. Right. And so it's like all these years of, I mean, sure, Sean, you didn't have one when you were growing up. I didn't have one when I was growing up and all these years of bike innovation of fatter tubes, bigger tires, more gears, you know, all the little accessories that you put onto the bikes and nobody thought about removing the pedals to make it a better experience for that age group and also sell a lot of bikes. And I think the example there is like, hey, you're trying to think about ways to make the bike better and taking away from the bike was one of the ways that was overlooked for a really long time. And so it also shows the potential because so many people are overlooking it that when you're among the few that doesn't, then you can uh, kind of exploit that inefficiency in the market of improvements, I guess. Before you go into the next example... The interesting thing about the Strider bike is I had heard the the founder of Strider bike on a different podcast months, like a year ago or more ago. Yeah. And I heard him talking about the evolution where he just wanted a better bike for his kid. He likes cycling and he tried all these modifications. I can't remember them all, but it it was so many. And why I find your idea of subtraction so important is I remember hearing that, oh, okay, then he took the pedals off, but it didn't like you into me that less is more like, like I like your book because now you give us a frame of like subtraction is beneficial. Like I heard that, but my brain didn't like register that, that less is more what was happening. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, Ryan McFarland is the inventor and it's cool. He's like, he's even, I really kind of pulled some of this stuff that he's on record of talking about in his, he was basically thinking about how to lightweight the bike. He was trying to make it more convenient for this age group, but he wasn't thinking about like, removing the pedals and striding. So he talks about like the things he thought about taking away. And then he was eventually he was like, well, what if I just took away the whole drivetrain mm-hmm. and then kind of that sequence of, 
of thought led him to be like, oh, well, let's try that. And then you realize that the kid can provide the propulsion mm-hmm. and that the kid can balance, which is surprising when you see it for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the other benefit of those bikes is that, you know, when my older kid, once he could push the pedals on a big kid bike, he never had to use training wheels. He just went straight from Strider to, to big kid bike, which is cool. I'm glad that connected the dots for you. Mm-hmm, <laughs> With yeah, Ryan's you. <laughs> and then the other, like just at a day-to-day level, I mean, I think about like how often do you think about what you can be doing better in your life, right? And for me, just something as simple as like, okay, here's my to-do list for today and going forward. And for a long time, that was, you know, it's just like, okay, what, what more can I do? What more can I do? What more can I do? And so many of the like influential things that I've done have been by also considering stop doings, right? It's like, there's an example where, hey, you're trying to improve this thing, which is like arguably the most important thing you have is how you use your time. And all you're thinking about is what can you add <laughs> to to that time? No wonder we get so busy and overscheduled and, and, you know, quite frankly, like end up in my case, at least like working on things that if I took time to stop and reflect were, were less important than other things I could be working on. This, this idea of like using our time and just filling it up once we yeah. get our time. When I was preparing for today, it made me think of, and I had to go back to get the actual quote from John Maynard Keynes. Um, he has an essay from 1930 called The Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. And the big idea from this was that he essentially was saying that by the time his grandchildren grew up, we'd be working 15 hours a week because right, technology right. and innovation would have freed up this time. But it just seems like our to-do list just keep getting bigger and bigger. And if we don't take that time to reflect on what, what is important for us, then I could see, yeah, what's this innate default option of addition just overrides. So in your research, have you seen any sort of correlation or link between the art of subtraction and self-reflection? So what I mean by that is people who have been able to sit with that white noise or that silence of having a to-do list that isn't a mile long, that's distracting them, keeping them busy. Have you seen links between people who have practiced self-reflection being able to effectively practice subtraction more effectively? That's a great question because nobody's, it's actually a better way of putting it than how I normally put it. Like we've seen the opposite okay, <laughs> in yeah. our research. So let me describe the experiment. It's kind of cool. There's, we give, this was something you could do on the on a computer screen, this gives us access to lots of different participants and you can get a lot of data in a short period of time. So we give people these, these like grid patterns that were basically the task was to make them symmetrical from left to right and top to bottom. And we would pre-fill the patterns so that one way to make them symmetrical was to add blocks in three quadrants. And one way to make them symmetrical was to subtract blocks from one quadrant. So it was like subtracting was the right answer. It was the simpler way to do it. We told them to do it as simply as possible. You know, people overlook subtraction as we've been talking about, but then like one iteration that we did on that. And the reason we were interested in this is like, you can tell if something's a cognitive bias or something like just something that is a heuristic or something that we go to quickly in our decision-making when people are put under cognitive load, so when they've got like more stuff going on in their brains, they resort to these biases even more, right? Because it's just kind of a substitute for thinking. So we've got these grids 
And one wrinkle that we threw in was to have people solve the grids while also like scrolling numbers across the bottom of the screen and asking them to, they were random numbers and the people had to press an F every time a five came by. I think that's what, you know, don't quote me on if that's exactly the combination, but you get the idea. They're basically yeah. doing two things at once. And so when these distracted people were trying to solve the grids, they became even more likely to add than the general population. So I guess you could take that in the opposite direction and say that like, okay, the people who weren't distracted in this case, giving themselves a little more space to think became more likely to see subtracting as an option. So that's the, you know, the kind of research evidence that we have that is brought to bear on your question. But I, I think also just the, this kind of intuition that like, well, number one, it's not that we can't think of it. Right. So the more time that we're going to spend deliberating, which the kind of, freeing up space to think would help with the more likely you are going to be to come up with subtraction. I'd also say that like in your question a little bit, Sean, like thinking to what your true values are, I think is important, right? Because so many times the addition is you're not thinking about, it's like, sure, like a hundred more thousand dollars is great, but you're not thinking about like, okay, well, what's the, what's the whole picture? How does this align with my actual values? And maybe your actual values are to like, have as much free time with your grandkids, you know, over the next 20 years and you've already got your financial needs met. And so then it doesn't make sense to spend, you know, a year trying to get a hundred thousand dollars. In that case, I think that like reflection helps you focus on the, on the big picture instead of just on like the individual additions themselves, which makes it easier to kind of think of subtraction as an option. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it really does. You know, I appreciate the the research example you gave because as you're talking, I'm thinking about this framing in our financial lives is the more we're busy working maybe extra hours because we feel like we need extra money. Sometimes I know we do, but say it's at the expense of other things, we're just cognitively overloaded. And I feel like we're distracted like that example and we can't make the proper decisions. So we resort back to these cognitive biases, what we talked a lot about because so many that apply to our financial lives that then we on autopilot. And so, yeah, your, your answer is that, that research, like you said, if we reverse it, yeah, the people who slow down are getting, I guess the answer a little better. So it, it makes me think of, I've heard you talk about Marie Kondo's sparking joy and she, in a way, puts in a little moment of self-reflection of, does this bring me joy? <laughs> yeah. Well, and also focuses you on the, you know, the sparking joy kind of flips it around to the positive aspect of, of getting mm. rid of the thing, but also like so many of her example, like she challenges people to visualize the clean living space, right. Um, mm -hmm. Right. From the beginning. And then that becomes the vision. Right. And it's like the people who are going to go through her decluttering method are like, okay, I'm really focused on this vision. And now it's not as hard to part with the t-shirt that you never wear, whatever the things are that you have to, to get rid of to achieve that vision. So yeah, there's certainly a parallel there. Mm -hmm. Our conversations make me think of your research when you, you'll be able to explain better, but had participants think about a vacation in Washington, DC. Yeah. Why it's coming to my mind now is vacations are busy because we feel like it's our respite chance. from the, it's a chance to have fun. So <laughs> I thought it was just extremely fascinating. So why don't you explain that? experience, but I also have heard you talk about how you like to experience maybe vacations at a slower pace. Yeah. And that's against our grain that we got to get busy, busy, busy. So why don't you share this research about vacations? 
Yeah. I mean, we, we are trying to, again, like explore this phenomenon across different contexts. So like physical things and then ideas and then social situations, you know, so the, the vacation was an example that we designed is like, okay, this is simulates people dealing with their everyday calendar and their everyday activities. The setup for this was a drag and drop interface on a computer screen. We gave said asked the participants to imagine like, hey, you're going to Washington, D.C. Here's your itinerary. Feel free to take stuff away from the itinerary or add stuff onto the itinerary. And there were tasks that you could add on. It was really easy to drag stuff off and free up space. By the time we had created this experiment, this version of the experiment, we're like, let's give people something that they will definitely subtract from. And so it's like, this was almost impossible to do. And there are 12 different things on there, maybe even 14. And there are big things like see the Smithsonian Museum, go to the Lincoln Memorial, eat at a five-star bistro. I mean, maybe you could do two of these things and have fun with them in a day. But people overwhelmingly added to this situation too. They're like, oh, well, we got to do this other, this other thing. We got to do this, this other activity. And they just made like a busy, chaotic day, even busier and, and more chaotic. And I mean, I don't know. I, I like to, I, I of course like, like seeing the sites and I don't want to miss out when I'm in a new place, but I also really, especially on vacation, it's like, you know, part of the thing is just, okay, let's sit back and things can go at a little slower pace and maybe have like more time for reflection in your head. <laughs> I'm taking a, a master's in positive psychology and oh, cool. one of the, and we're applying our relationships with money. And so a lot of the sentiment that we're talking about is similar, but the study around savoring is I'm hearing this as well is when we slow down, we can savor things more often. I don't know if mm. you've ever seen how adding subtraction may allow us just to savor the moments like having a coffee, maybe in a Washington park. That's interesting. Yeah. You just need to like free up space to, to have the, that's, you know, those savoring moments, right. That savoring requires time, right. Requires thought requires Mm -hmm. even space. So yeah, that's neat. The the Washington example is of interest to me. Cause again, if we look at our financial lives, I feel like it's the same thing is like we have these preset itineraries or these work schedules and we're always trying to add something else to it, something else to it. But yet at least I speak for experience. I was always doing that and I still do, but uh, I'm getting better. I was always trying to make extra money or do this extra thing so that I can have some time with my kids when I'm 65. Meanwhile, they're on my floor playing Legos and I just could be with them right now. And they actually like you now. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not that they won't when you're 65, but it's a, yeah, there's never going to be a time like this again. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's why I think this subtraction, it resonates so much with me is that we're experiencing life right now. And if we could start subtracting and having this intentional process of selecting the things we want, I feel like we live this richer life. And when I say richer, it's like experiencing and savoring and having more joy to Marie Kondo's perspective. So that's what is coming to my mind. And so since you've written the book about a year and a half ago, I believe, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or maybe you wrote it much year. Yeah, no, no, no. It came half. out a year and a <laughs> half ago. You're yeah. Close. yeah. And since doing your media request podcast and having the book be out there, maybe doing some reflection since the book has been released, I'm sorry if I'm asking it personal here, but what practical things have you started to implement in your life looking back on that last year and a half process that you've started to add more 
applicable because and I ask applicable because I look at your your work and I see your very your your academic focused research, but also I appreciate it because it's applicable. And I think yeah. for the vast majority of us, we want distilled <laughs> applicable things. So yeah. what have you been able to add into your life that helped you bypass this default option of addition and practice more subtraction? I can return to the stop doings, right? I mean, building those in while I'm doing the to do's. And I mean, number one, it's just a cool thing to do and helpful thing to do. But it also illustrates a larger idea, which is like, to the extent that you can build in reminders into your process, right? Or cues into your process, whether it's the to do's, I guess it's an example of your calendar, but maybe it's like, you could think about your information accumulation too, right? It's like you listen to Mm -hmm. these podcasts and you read these books and it's like, okay, where are you building in time to like, kind of synthesize what you think, but also question the things that you already think, right? So we do this in our mental models too. Like we just kind of build new information on top of old information. And most of the time that's fine, but it doesn't leave a lot of time for questioning like wrong ideas that might be in our mental models. And one of the best ways to get smarter or get more effective or feel more joy is to get rid of those misconceptions. So again, like building that into your thinking process, however that occurs, or your information accumulation process. So for me, it's like, you know, I I certainly listen to podcasts. I certainly read books. I certainly am acquiring information all the time. I think that's amazing part of living when we do. But I also like when I go for a run this afternoon, I'm not going to be listening to anything. I'm going to be like allowing my brain to process information. And that's just, you know, that's intentional on my part to be like, okay, this is my time for a different kind of thinking, maybe not this just like pure adding. Other types of tips and tricks that I picked up. I mean, just like anytime you can make a rule, like, I mean, in our house, we haven't been very good at sticking with it, but it's like, if you're getting two Amazon packages delivered and it's not food or something that you're going to like get rid of, then obviously you're like filling up space in your house. Right. And so like what two things are going to come out of the house, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. we, we, the, the, the toy closet is packed to capacity. If we get these two toys, what two toys are we giving to, to charity or to the neighbors or whatever. And so like physical stuff, also you can think about that with rules and processes. I talk to organizations a lot and they're like, Oh, we just got like so much stuff. And you can see the same thing with like, national legislation and state legislation. There's all these old funny laws on the books that nobody really thought about getting rid of. And you can just put in place a practice where it's like, okay, if you bring a new piece of legislation, then you also have to suggest two old pieces of legislation that we should consider getting rid of. I mean, it's just consider it, you know, it's not, you're not making the decision. You're just kind of drawing people's attention to this opportunity for subtraction. And, you know, that's a legislation's like a a large scale example, but in my faculty department, you know, it's a relative 10 faculty members. We're doing our department bylaws. We can do the exact same thing. If you want to add something to the bylaws, what things should we take out of our bylaws? And you kind of manage some of the growth that happens in that area. So those are some of the practical things. I will say one of the hardest ones I hope I'm getting better at it is just parenting because Hmm. I find that the more you care about something, right, the harder it is to deliberately subtract from it. But I, I tell myself that I've like, if I've thought about the adding option and thought about the subtracting option, then I'm doing the right things for my kids. An example. So our daughter's three sons, eight. And so occasionally we'll have these amazing moments where they're like playing together nicely and I'll like be in the kitchen, emptying the dishwasher and like, Oh, should I go in and like 
inject myself into this situation or should I like just let this ride for the next 10 minutes until something happens and then I can go in. It's like, that's okay. Just like, let it be, remove myself from the situation and, you know, let them have that time. And, you know, it's also a balance that you try to walk in terms of like letting them do stuff for themselves versus, you know, you help them with everything. But I find it the hardest in my parenting because it's like, obviously you want to do everything possible to, to help your kids. Yeah. I understand that from a parenting perspective and see like when we have that emotional desire to help. Right. Creating that space is hard. Has your son Ezra ever turned around and said, dad, I taught you the subtraction long ago about the Lego pieces and bridge. (laughs) Yeah. He loves it. He loves, uh, yeah. He'll never stop reminding me of that. I've been thinking about this for a long time, just in terms of how humans make decisions, but one like really seminal moment in kind of framing the research was playing. It was Duplos at the time with Ezra. He was only three and we were building a bridge and one of the, support structures one of the columns holding up the bridge was shorter than the other one so the bridge wasn't level and i went to add a block to the shorter column by the time i had turned back around ezra had removed a block from the longer column and i was like oh that's exactly what i'm interested in like why is it when we're trying to improve something why don't we think about why do we you know kind of default to adding and not think about taking away so so ezra inspired the the research question. <laughs> Certainly here in curiosity is important to this too. And we've had Todd Cashton on the podcast who wrote the book on curiosity and uh-huh. so many different areas that I think can help us this self-reflection, being curious to help us subtract things in our lives. I've often heard you talk about on other podcasts about how sometimes crises or big events in our lives force us to start thinking about subtraction because we quite frankly don't have an option. So COVID-19 example fundamentally changed how we lived in a lot of people. Of course it was very hard and there's lots of illnesses and death for others. It allowed us to think and subtract. We had to, we were forced to, are you aware of, or have you contemplated how we can kind of artificially create these crises so that we can really push ourselves to reflect on how to subtract or is that just not maybe an effective approach to this? Uh, that's a great question. I think uh, obviously we don't want to create a crisis that has negative elements to it, but there's an example that springs to mind. There's a company, they just wrote about it actually in Harvard Business Review, but there's this company called As- Asana. They did this thing called a meeting doomsday. And basically they just said like, take all the meetings off your calendar for the next 48 hours And you're allowed to put them back in, but you have to like evaluate each one, one by one and see like, okay, does this actually make sense? Do we really need all the participants? And it saves some ridiculous amount, like tens of hours per employee per month. When you translate that into financial impact and just like, you know, quality of the workplace impact, it's just absolutely transformative. I mean, they even call it a meeting doomsday. So it's kind of like they're, they're using that crisis framing. And I think then, then the default, kind of flips the default around, right? The default is no longer, oh, you're going to all these meetings. The default is you don't have any meetings and then you can like, sure, you can add them in, but now you have to think about intentionally whether, they, whether they're valuable. I'd also say that it, it paints the picture of what less can look like, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing that we have a, a tough time with. And it's like, it's almost less about helping you think of the possible subtractions. But like when COVID happened, you saw, Hey, like this is what happens if people 
walk around in the neighborhood more, right? And that's like a part of this that we want to keep after the negative parts of the pandemic are behind us, right? So I think that kind of using that that visualization element, it's like, hey, there's a lot of things where we can just try subtraction, like the meeting doomsday. And if we don't like it, we can go back to the way things were. But it's like, there's not really any harm in trying. You know, that makes me think about in my work as a planner, sometimes I'll have conversations when people's credit card expires. I haven't enlisted this. This has come up where they're like, you know what? It was kind of nice to have to like go through all my subscriptions and I have to, I consciously reactivated the ones that were important to me. And like, I wiped out like 50% of them. So maybe there's yeah. like a doomsday credit card subscription thing. Oh, that would be amazing if you could do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so as we come to an end here, we opened up with Springsteen. Now, I've heard you speak about how Springsteen, that's Bruce Springsteen, has taught us how subtraction could be valuable. Why don't you share what insights you have gained from uh, Bruce's wisdom on subtraction? So we talked at the beginning about how one reason this is hard is because when you subtract something that doesn't show competence, right? If you take something away, it's like, well, maybe Sean just, you know, didn't know he could have put that extra fancy word in his website description. It's like, you know, and when in fact you intentionally edited it to make the whole thing better. And it's just hard for people to notice your subtractions that are hard to think of in the first place. But there is a way to show competence through subtracting and that's by subtracting enough, right? So if you subtract enough, people will notice that it's what you've created is different and then assume that the subtracting was intentional. I mean, you can think about like Apple products, which, you know, they're, they're obviously different because they're like stripped down. And so like Bruce Springsteen, my favorite musician, he calls darkness on the edge of town, his samurai record. And he's like, it's all stripped down for fighting and darkness for those who don't know as much about Springsteen as Sean and I, I mean, it's, it was his fourth album. So he's already a rock. I mean, born to run has already come out. He's famous. And he's, he was in a conflict with his, I think with his recording studio or just like contractual issues where he didn't, couldn't release any music. So he's recording all these songs. A lot of the songs that he records during this time, he gives to other artists. So like, because the night like charted for Patti Smith. And there's several songs on there that were top 40 hits and Springsteen at this point in his career had never had a top 40 hit. So he's giving away songs. Then he's, he, he writes about, I think the, I can't remember if it's over a hundred or over 50, just the ridiculous amount of songs during this period that he has since released. We know are good. And he only puts, I think it's 10 on the album. And so he's like whittling down there. And then the songs themselves are, that's the most clear evidence of the subtraction and that they're like really sparse lyrically and even musically. He had about a hundred fewer words per song on darkness than on born to run, which was his, previous album. And then also the kind of instrumentals were stripped down too. And when people heard it, it wasn't confused with him being lazy, right? It wasn't like, Oh, Bruce couldn't think of any lyrics. So he just wrote sparse lyrics. It was like, Oh, look how powerful this is because it's like stripped down music and stripped down instrumentals and stripped down lyrics. And so he was able to show competence because he subtracted. And it was, I think, because, you know, just subtracting enough, right? If you keep taking away and keep taking away, eventually people will be like, oh, yeah, like obviously Sean is doesn't have a lot of meetings on his calendar because he's like super protective of his time and doing really valuable things with that time. It's not because he's lazy. So I think that that's the the lesson to gain 
from darkness on the edge of town. <laughs> and I can just imagine how difficult, like all of us, when we create something or we do something and we have to remove how difficult and intentional that forces someone to be. And I think, I think it's a great, I never, ever thought about that. The two of them together until you you (laughs) put that. And I was Googling it and he talks about as well as how he was influenced from the, as he quotes, deceptively simple lyrics of country and country had never been something that he, he lended himself to. So you, you definitely hear it. And then passed down, like I, I had to do some research on this. It was a good question from my editors. Like, Hey, has anybody like adopted this sound? And it's like, if you talk like the killers, a more modern mm. band, their sound is kind of comes from darkness. And there, there's one other prominent band that's not coming to mind now, but it's like, it created this new sound that was then kind of passed down. And also I hear a good lullaby for your child too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, has racing in the street is on that album. And that's a song that I sing to both my kids now for them to fall asleep. So it has a special place in my heart, but there, I mean, there are a ton of great songs on that album. There's darkness on the edge of town, the title track, and then badlands is on there. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, if you go to a concert, you're liable to hear half oh, the yeah. songs on that album. You'll see some <laughs> fist pump in the badlands. Yeah. <laughs> the promised land, the promised land. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I see we are at our time. For those of us who want to find out more about you, can you point us to your website, where to purchase the book and any other information you want to share? Yeah, the book's available wherever you get your books. Certainly consider supporting like the independent booksellers. And yeah, my website, my parents gave me a good Google name. So it's just L-E-I-D-Y-K-L-O-T-Z.com. And that's where I try to keep things updated. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time today. I'm on a mountain without a top My wealth is measured and now I spend my time But now I write a freedom story With every breath inhaled Money is not the boat of life It's just the wind